And the principle is one of trust. The principle is one of friendship. The positive exhortation that flows out of this for us is simply that you would befriend your friends. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part 11 of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs with Pastor Paul Twist. We return today to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, where Pastor Paul's text is chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, in this 12-part study of this Spirit-inspired book. Have you itemized the people in your life lately? Neighbors, associates, church brothers and sisters, Any true friends among them? Yesterday, Pastor spoke about interpersonal relationships that are necessary just to make your way in life. Have you considered which, if any, friends are counted among them? Pastor Paul's subtitle for the last three parts of this series is Finding Friends Among Fools, a very unusual way to think about this subject. King Solomon, who wrote many of these Proverbs, was pictured training his sons about their companions, and his wisdom brought forth many examples of fools. They are all over the place. Here's part 11 of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs. Beyond the book of Proverbs, think about the theology of the Old Testament. We have been created and fashioned and formed by a relational God. Consider just a minute how the Bible begins... God creates mankind as the pinnacle of the created order. And we're told in Genesis 1, 27, that we have been made in the image of God. It's so important, that one verse, that we have been made in the image of God, to remember that we are unique in all of God's creation. There is nothing else on this planet that carries the image of God. It is us. He created us in the image of God, which means we represent him, We imitate him. We have the privilege of representing his character and his nature in a specific and a special way. Now, how do we do that? Well, one way, if it's true that God is a relational God, God existed before the foundation of the world in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you might say, in perfect friendship with one another, If that's the character of God, then one way in which we imitate his character is to be in relationship with each other. Friendships are not insignificant. We touched on this very concept this morning as we thought through the idea of marriage. The reason marriage is so special is because, again, it imitates the relational nature of God. And then think about the very next verse, 128, God gives us the privilege, you've been created in my image. Next verse, he gives us the responsibility. And he says, now go and fill the earth. Now, what does that mean? You've been made in the image of God. You are my image bearers. You reflect my glory in a special way. Now go and fill the earth. Which means God is saying, spread my glory around this earth. You imitate me, you image me, you reflect my glory, now fill the earth, fill the earth, 
as image bearers, fill the earth with my glory. So when you pursue good friendships, that is just one very specific way in which you can glorify the the Lord greatly. By contrast, when you try and pursue life alone, void of any real friendships in your life, or when you pursue bad friendships, you do great injury to the name of the Lord. It is of paramount importance that we all of us develop the skill of finding good friends. Now, how do we do this? Is it like catching lightning in a bottle? Is it a really hard pursuit to to go after? Actually, no. It's very straightforward. and, And here is just one portion of God's word that guides us to learn how it is we pursue relational excellence. We have three stanzas here, three scenarios, and each one gives us a principle for finding friends among fools. The first one, verses one through five, I've entitled simply, Befriend Your Friends. Befriend Your Friends. Now I'll explain what I mean by that in just one moment, but first look at the text again with me. Solomon creates a hypothetical scenario. Verse one, my son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, if you've given your pledge for a stranger. So the hypothetical scenario is that the son has been approached by a man. This man has taken out a loan. He has bought a horse and he took out a loan to buy the horse and now he owes money to the, to the person that loaned him the, the money. Maybe with a little bit of interest each month, he has to keep up his payments. And the son has said he will be the security for him. He'll be the the backstop. He'll be the surety. So that if the man who owes the money month by month, if he defaults on his payment, if for some reason he can't keep up with his payments, the son has agreed that he'll make the payments on his behalf. If you have put up security for your neighbor, if you've given your pledge for a stranger. Verse two, if, you've snared, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, so he made the agreement verbally, probably in the presence of others, and it's become binding. It is a binding agreement. Solomon says, do this. Save yourself, verse 3. You have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with him. Solomon is saying, forcefully, get out of the commitment that you have made. Now, let's think through what the particular issue is here. The issue is not the borrowing of money. Many Christians think that a loan in any form is inherently bad. As long as it's pursued with wisdom, as long as it's done responsibly, there's nothing against that. It's not the case that being a surety for another is condemned. In fact, the Old Testament law makes provision for doing exactly what the son has done here. The Old Testament law back in the book of Exodus says, if you loan money, it's reasonable to expect that the person you're loaning to has a backup, that he has someone in place to make the payments if he fails. So that's not even the issue. The issue here, verse 1, is that the son has given his pledge for a stranger. 
The issue is that the son has said he would do this for someone whom he does not know. Now, Solomon uses the word neighbor. He uses that word in its broadest sense. It doesn't mean friend here. It just means a co-equal, somebody in the same environment. You, you know, that guy down the street who you see him every day going to work. I know he's married. I think it's two kids I've seen. There may be more. No, I don't know his name. That's the neighbor in this scenario. And it's that person that Sol- the son has said, sure, I'll be the security for you. He's made a decision that he has not thought through. This decision carries a huge amount of risk with it. He has no idea whether this stranger is financially equipped to keep up the payments. And so he risks his own financial ruin because he didn't spend time getting to know this guy. And so Solomon in response says, son, you have to get out of this commitment. Solomon pleads with him and he says, work until you are exhausted to get yourself out. Give your eyes no sleep. No slumber. You go and knock on his door again and again and again, and you plead with him until he says, okay, you're absolved of that responsibility. Or else, verse 5, the hunter will come, the one that lent the money. When he defaults, the hunter will come. And notice, we are not even told in this hypothetical scenario whether the man, the neighbor, the stranger is able to keep up the payments or not. Solomon doesn't even play it out for us to say, oh, and by the way, he does default two months down the line. He doesn't even consider that. He says the very fact that you've entered into this with someone that you did not know is absolute folly. And so the warning in this first scenario is not actually against a specific type of person. We're going to look just in a minute at specific people namely the sluggard and then the wicked man. But this first scenario doesn't have a specific character in view. It actually just has a scenario in view. And again, to emphasize, the issue is not money. The issue is not providing a a surety for somebody. That simply provides the framework for the principle to be played out. And the principle is one of trust. The principle is one of friendship. The positive exhortation that flows out of this for us is simply that you would befriend your friends. And what I mean by that is that you would get to know very well the people in your life. We cannot afford to exist in relationships where we don't really know the people that we're dealing with. We must invest time and energy into friendships. We must be willing to to be held accountable and to hold others accountable. We must expect transparency, and transparency must be expected of us. We need to understand that asking probing questions of a personal nature is not a bad thing. We can easily slip into the cultural lie that friends are only ever polite to one another, that friends only ever say nice things about each other, that friends never really confront, rebuke, admonish, Actually, that's what strangers do. That's how strangers behave towards one another. Friends invest in their relationships. They're honest and open. And what they do over time is that they establish trust. 
Now, you have to realize that the age in which we live is the age of the internet. The age in which we live is the age of online communities. The age in which we live is of online chat sessions and online everything else. Social scientists suggest that trust is lower today than it ever has been. The average Facebook user has 250 friends, and he trusts very few of them. The irony is that the technology that is designed to bring us closer and connect us so readily with one another is actually causing us to live our lives more isolated than ever before. You can't build trust on Facebook. Trust is not built on Instagram or a Twit feed. It's not built on a blog post or by emails. Trust is built face-to-face and over much time. Look around you. See who God has placed in the same church as you. I would encourage you, just as a way of practical application, to pursue membership. Why? Because membership is just one way of formalizing your commitment here of saying, I want to be here and I want to be held accountable. I want to serve and be served. I want to do life with these people. And beyond that, to be part of a fellowship group and to be part of a Bible study, because these are the arenas in which we build and establish trust. These are the arenas where we build real, meaningful friendships. And then when you've put in the hard work of developing real friendships, of befriending your friends... When life confronts you with one of the many scenarios in which you need somebody else, this is just one of them, and there are many, when life confronts you with one of the many scenarios in which you have to rely on somebody else, you will not walk into the same scenario as the sun. You won't be asking a stranger, and a stranger won't be asking you. But in those moments, you can lean upon friends. And if you think again about the opportunity we have to glorify the Lord as his image bearers, to befriend your friends, to pursue real relationships amongst God's people is such a unique and a special way to put his glory on display. Of all the things that you would be tempted to to bypass or to streamline or to shortcut in your life, don't let relationships be one of them. The principle is so simple, and yet it can be so hard to simply befriend your friends. Now, one objection would be, it's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that the Lord has put in my life in different ways. And you know what? I've got a whole lot of stuff going on in my life, responsibilities that I have to give my time to, and and I understand that. And so what we get in the second scenario verses 6 through 11, is actually a point of priority. When you think through who is it that you're going to pursue for friendship, specifically from the perspective of being influenced, when you think through the question of who is it that's going to influence me in my life, this second scenario gives us the principle that I've called pursue the diligent. Befriend your friends and pursue the diligent. 
Now, this is perhaps the most well-known portion of this chapter, maybe even in the whole book of Proverbs. Go to the ant, O sluggard. We know that admonition well. Solomon is rebuking the lazy man, the idle man, the work-shy man, and it's curious that he rebukes him with the ant, the positive example of the ant. He doesn't go to the workhorse. He doesn't go to the industrious beaver. He doesn't even go to the magisterial eagle. He goes to the tiny, teeny, often overlooked ant. What does Solomon say about the ant? Well, he doesn't say, consider the ant for she is numerous. Did you know that there are over 12,000 species of ants in the world? He does not say, consider the ant for she is strong. Did you know that the ant can lift 20 times its own body weight? But he neglects to mention that. He doesn't say that the ant is productive. In a very literal sense, the queen ant in her lifetime will have millions of babies. But he neglects to mention that. He doesn't say, consider the ant for she is very loyal. Did you know that after the queen ant dies, the rest of the colony will die with her? Solomon doesn't even say, consider the ant for she is troublesome. Did you know that the ants are the leading cause of traffic light shorts in the state of Texas? But Solomon doesn't mention that. And I think that's an oversight on his part. There is one thing that Solomon gives us. He says, consider the ant, yes, because she works hard, but look specifically, he says, consider her because there is an absence of leadership and yet she works. Verse 7, without having any chief, officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and she gathers her food in the harvest. Now, to be clear, there is a social structure to an ant colony. Scientists have studied it, and they see that they have different roles. There's no one ant telling every other ant what it is to do that day. The ant, in a fascinating way, wakes up and goes to work, and there's nobody telling the ant what to do. The ant, in a fascinating way, seems to have some kind of instinctive, God-given wisdom, you might say. The ant is an initiator. The ant is its own leader. The ant epitomizes hard work because the ant sees the task set before him. The ant understands the problem and goes at it. The ant goes after it on its own initiative. She has the foresight not only to do that, but to live not for the moment, but for the future. Contrary to the it will never happen to me mentality, the ant prepares her bread in the summer. She gathers in time for the harvest in order to provide for the winter. And with this incredible observation, Solomon says to the sluggard, you need to learn from her. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. That's what the sluggard says. Now notice this, the sluggard here is portrayed as a procrastinator. The sluggard is not saying, I won't work. The sluggard is saying, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do tomorrow what could easily 
be done today. The sluggard fails to understand how marginal degrees of neglect can quickly lead to ruin. I'll just hit the alarm clock one more time. Does that sound familiar? If that's what your life looks like, Solomon says very quickly, poverty will come upon you. Just a little neglect here and there, marginal degrees of neglect, and you will know ruin. So this forceful rebuke on Solomon's part towards the sluggard is seeking to to arouse him from his slumber and his laziness. He wants him to repent and set himself to work. And not only work, but hard, self-initiated labor. Now, with this well-known portion, I think one question that we need to ask of the text is why the concept of hard work? If indeed this passage is functioning to give us a strategy for relational excellence, how do we know what to stay away from and how do we know who to gravitate towards? Why this characteristic amongst many other commendable characteristics that he could have given us? He could have said to the son, uh, think about this quality in a friend and make sure you gravitate towards those people or another quality. And yet the one he lands upon is hard work. And I think the answer comes as we consider more broadly the theology of the book of Proverbs. If you read through Proverbs beginning to end, what you realize is that Proverbs is a book that very much emphasizes the responsibility of man. Proverbs is not the book that you would go to uh, find an extended treatment of, say, God's sovereignty, although Solomon does talk about it here and there. Proverbs is not the book that you'd maybe go to 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 get an in-depth treatment of how God is working in redemptive history to bring his plan of salvation to completion, although There are places where he speaks about such things. When you read through Proverbs, one conclusion that you have to make by the end is that there is work to be done. When you read through Proverbs and you think of your place and your responsibility in God's economy as one that would identify with his people, you have to conclude that there is a task that has been set before me. Over and over, Solomon gives you what it is to live wisely, and he focuses on your responsibility in the equation. He has worked out the world, and he has given you a blueprint to live. And then he says, you, reader, you have to live. You have to work this out. You have to strive for the skill and the wisdom that is given to you in this book. And that goes against... The voice of today that would say, if you see excellence in anyone, it must be because of giftedness. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Have you ever thought of your Father God as a relational person? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we're told, so God created man in his own image. And if that's true, wouldn't that mean mankind is also relational? Solomon spoke of relationships when he wrote Proverbs. It was important to him that his children would work hard on building their own friendships. Christians are followers of the one true God, so we know we're expected as his children to invest in good and godly friendships. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ through his word and in prayer to learn his sound teaching about glorifying him. One way is through our friendships. To learn more, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. 
timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for our free audio archive, where you'll find an abundance of scriptural wisdom to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area this weekend and don't have a church you call home, come worship the Lord with us Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Tomorrow, part 12 of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs, as Pastor Paul wraps up this exceptional series on Proverbs. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.